0: to the special conference of the Murthy law firm on the topic of the new USCIS policy memo on third party placements and how it will affect your H1B filings. I am Sheila Murthy, president and CEO of the Murthy law firm and I'm honored to welcome all of you and to introduce to you two of my learned and brilliant colleagues Aaron Finkelstein, the managing attorney of the firm, who has been with me, as we often joke, coming on 20 years. Uh, And Chris Drinan, who's who's also a senior attorney and has been with the firm close to 10 years at this point. Um, So obviously, this memo has concerned, has serious concerns and obviously concerns all of you. Uh, it was released, as most of you know, late in the, I think, late in the day, end of the day on Thursday, February the 22nd, 2018, by the United States uh, Citizenship and Immigration Service. And I just read out the title, which is Contracts and Itinerary Requirements for H-1B Petitions Involving Third-Party Work Sites. So it's really like a slap on the wrist or a blow in the sort of a big, big problem for companies that use third-party placements or consulting companies. The new memo deals with the required documentation for H-1 petitions that are using the EVC, employer-vendor-client model, specifically with respect to contracts and itineraries. This memo, as you can see from the detailed explanation that both Chris and Aaron will go through with you momentarily, it has the potential to make obtaining approvals on H1 petitions for consulting companies with the EVC model, even more challenging and time consuming. And it actually they claim that they are reversing some of the so-called relaxed USCIS guidance with regard to documentations that was previously released, though honestly I didn't think they were very relaxed in the past <laughs> year or two year or two. So with that, uh, Chris, uh, what does this new memo rescind? What policies do they rescind of prior USCIS guidance?
1: Well, Sheila, one of the things that this memo very specifically rescinds that I thought was striking when I when I first read it, um, it rescinds some relatively favorable guidance that came out a few years ago about what you had to to provide to prove uh, to prove a specialty occupation and to prove an employer-employee relationship when you're talking about someone who's, who's placed at a third-party work site. Specifically, some of the prior guidance said that normally USCIS adjudicators should not be asking for contracts unless they have a, a specific reason for asking a contract that they can they can articulate. Um, the prior guidance said that normally letters from the vendors, letters from the end client would be sufficient um, to prove the existence of, of specialty occupation work and to prove an employer-employer relationship. This memo appears to say that the adjudicators now have uh, essentially uh, the ability to request and to demand contracts, statements of work, things that it, it appeared previously they were not normally uh, allowed to ask for. And that's a, that's a major change here.
0: Okay. Uh Aaron?
2: You know, Chris, it's funny because it is a major change, but they've been asking for a lot of that stuff for a long time anyway. Mm-hmm. It's just now they seem to be saying, now they're seeming to say, we we don't ha- we, it's not optional. We can actually mm-hmm. demand it from you. Uh, and you see this also carries forward with the contracts where they're hitting with master services agreements mm-hmm. or SOWs, where they're coming out straight out and saying generic terms aren't just mm-hmm. going to cut it anymore that you need to use more specific terms. You need to use terms that detail exactly what the employment is. You need to be able to isolate that it's actually specialty occupation. Mm-hmm. That stuff is also coming down the pike in an even stronger way.
0: Exactly. And so, the, you know, when Aaron just mentioned that they talk about the detailed description of the services or job duties to be performed, as we just talked, they are really going and slapping and hitting, hitting you for the special lack of specialty mm-hmm. occupation. And that's such a gr- sort of for this blanket area. It's like, you're the CEO of a company? Well, you don't need a bachelor's degree to be a CEO of a company. Hence, it's not a specialty occupation. So we can deny that H-1B, mm-hmm. you know? Every- I mean, unless there is a specific license requirement, like a professional engineering license, or like a law degree, or a medical degree that requires both the completion of the five or four, seven, ten years of education, like with you know, law- lawyers, you have the four-year bachelor's degree plus mm-hmm. a three-year law degree and sometimes a one-year LLM, then you get the license. They're saying, other than those, we could potentially deny almost every case. And unless it's usually, I think, civil engineers that require the professional engineering right. license, most computer engineers don't require mm-hmm. a separate license. So they're almost using any excuse to deny these cases, which is really, really frustrating. Right. Uh, You know, it also appears that vendor and client letters by themselves may no longer be sufficient. In fact, they're saying that the submission of both the contracts and the client letters may be required to meet some of the requirements under this new memo Mm -hmm. on top of everything else that they're getting going after. So, Chris, let me come back to you Mm -hmm. then. What is specifically requested under this so-called February twenty-second, 2018 memo. I thought was extremely interesting also the fact that unlike all prior USCIS memos, there is no person that is signed as the author of this memo. I wonder if they're putting their tail between their legs, they're afraid, or they're trying to show that they don't want one person to be targeted as the bad person or maybe because it's coming right from the mm-hmm. top, from the president himself telling people what to do and telling his stooges mm-hmm. what rules to follow, that they're just calling it the USCIS memo. Uh, I don't know. I don't know what your thoughts are about that. And what do you think is specifically now required for H-1 consulting companies? Well,
1: one thing they do specifically talk about in this memo is the requirement of an itinerary. Now, that's, that's an, a longstanding regulatory requirement for H-1Bs. If you have someone who's going to be working in more than one location, you have to provide an itinerary of, of where they're going to be, um, and and how long they're going to be there. Now, previously, it, you could basically submit sort of generalized statements about what the what the placement is going to be, uh, and what the duration is going to be. Particularly when you're talking about a, a an employer-vendor-client type case, um, what USCIS is doing, I think, in this memo, they're really reinforcing this long-standing regulatory requirement and sort of specifically applying it to these these uh, IT consulting type cases, they're really saying that if you have someone who's going to be in more than one location, you have to provide exact dates and an exact location. Um, generalized statements of, of multiple locations no longer is going to be sufficient. Um, now, this is important because a lot of a lot of H-1B employers will put multiple locations on their cases. It might be a client location and the in uh, the main office of the company. That's a common thing you'll see on an H-1B petition. Um, and because this is a specific regulatory requirement, it's what we would call initial evidence, if you don't submit this with your initial filing, theoretically, they could deny the case outright. No RFE, no notice of intent to deny. You could file your case and, and then a couple of months later, just get a denial back with no opportunity to respond. And that's, that's really a, a big issue.
0: This is sounding ridiculous and crazy. Aaron, you're trying to say something? Well,
2: it's just that it's interesting even further because let's say you have somebody who has two client locations. And that individual doesn't honestly know when he's going to be working at which client location is as and when needed. But they know that between the two client locations, they're filling 40 hours. So in that situation, you want to put dates and times and locations and be specific, but the reality is that there is no specificity. Mm-hmm. So what you're ask, actually asking you to do is either present something that doesn't exist or take the risk of pre and outright denial. Mm-hmm. So that's uh, it's a pretty crazy standard. Uh, the other thing that they enhanced on top of what they put as the itinerary is they said, hey, even if there's one third party work location, so it's not multiple locations, you know what? it's a good idea to submit the itinerary anyway, because somehow that itinerary is also going to help us to understand whether or not it's not it's a specialty occupation. And whereas what what Chris was saying before, that we were looking at dates and locations of employment, Here, they've enhanced it even further. They said, hey, when you submit this optional specialty, this optional itinerary, which is supposedly going to help us with specialty occupation, you should include the dates of the services or the engagements, the name and address of the ultimate employer is the way they phrased it, but they mean the end client, of course. The names, addresses, including four suites, offices, and telephone numbers, of the location where the service will be performed from the time requested. And not only that, but we want you to give us corroborating evidence to show that your itinerary, which actually is not even required, is a bona fide itinerary that you've submitted, even though it was optional for you to submit it in the first place. So they've actually taken itinerary. They've said we have the right to out and out deny your case if you don't give us the basic itinerary. But while you're at it, we really want an enhanced itinerary, and we don't trust you kind of you need to prove to us that that's the bona fide real place where you're going to be working and when.
0: It almost sounds like that they almost want to cancel the H-1B petition, that the administration and the executive branch doesn't have judicial or the power to create, Mm -hmm. make laws with statute. But in a sense, they're pretty much taking away, since Congress is not acting to remove, because Congress, Mm -hmm. especially even a Republican-controlled Congress that we have now is inclined to want to protect H-1B employers and H-1B work, etc. But the president and his uh, whole agenda was Mm -hmm. about, you know, taking not just illegal immigration, but his heavy agenda was H-1s. But he made it sound, though he did equivocate a lot. He did say, Mm -hmm. I love H-1s and they're useful. And then next moment he would say, no, 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 Uh, you know, H-1s, there's been an abuse and misuse of the system. So he would waffle... But now that he got elected, the whole thing seems to be how can I cash in those checks, millions and millions of dollars, and give you nothing for it? If we went into a store and gave somebody thousands of dollars and expected something in exchange, but I got nothing for it, I would be pretty ticked Mm -hmm. off. And I think all our H-1 employers and consulting companies have every right to be really upset and livid, Mm -hmm. angry is an understatement for the government cashing in checks, demanding fees, taking in the money, and then not giving the approvals for which we are applying. And I can't even go down the road to the competition to get my H-1 approval because this is a damn monopoly. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so it sounds like this whole memo has reaffirmed the requirement to demonstrate, again, the employer-employee relationship as required by the 2010 Newfeld memo. And in third-party placement sites, we know the employer-employee relationship is more difficult to prove. So with that, I'm going to have mm-hmm. Chris explain.
1: Yeah, this memo uh, restates the requirements of the, the 2010 Newfeld Memo, which I suspect a lot of you are, are familiar with it. Um, we've talked about that many times. Essentially, you have to show the, that the H-1B petitioner is, is actually the employer of the, of the H-1B employee, um, even though they're, they're working at the a client location. Essentially, the Newfeld Memo said, H-1B employer has to be directing the activities of H-1B employee, not the incline. Um, that's 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 old news. Which that's been itself,
0: around, I think, is very, is very tough and it, yeah. difficult in the EVC model because they can't be monitoring day-to-day activities of their employees. Exactly.
1: And this memo talks about that and, and notes, uh, as you just did, Sheila, that this is more difficult to establish when you're talking about an EVC case. Um, it also notes that it becomes increasingly difficult when you talk about more uh, more extended relationships. We have not just an E V an E V and a C. We have an E a V a V a V and a C. Multiple vendors, um, multiple change of chains of contracts. Uh, it gets more difficult to show this employer-employee relationship. It also gets more difficult, and which is closely related, to show that there's specialty occupation work available because it's all it's all tied in together. Um, now the memo also, which I think is telling, seems to say that there. Are are more uh, H-1B rules violations in this type of relationship. Things like wages, uh, wage violations, benching violations, um, not providing specialty occupation duties as, as the employer is supposed to be doing. Um, and, and that's something to note. They seem to be really targeting these EVC model cases, particularly where we're talking more extended relationships with multiple vendors. That seems to be the target here.
0: So what does the employer petitioner need to demonstrate, Aaron? So
2: if you look at the employer's, the, the petitioner needs to come up with, number one, what the specific work arrangement is, what it's going to be. Number two is they need to show a proper LCA and that LCA has to have a specialty occupation. The SOC code has to match the actual work that's being performed But it's not enough to say the work that's being performed by the petitioner or by the petitioner's letter. It has to be based on the requirements that are being imposed by the end client. So if the end client is is requiring, for example, the bachelor's degree or the end client is requiring a specialty, a specific field of study helpful, if the end client is dictating the work duties since the end client knows specifically what the employee is doing, they want to know directly from the end client that all of this matches and goes together.
0: And they actually refer to the end client, I think, as the ultimate employer slash real employer rather than as a client thereby almost making them responsible to provide so that their job description is for the job duties. Chris and Aaron?
1: Which is very strange language because um, the, the whole idea of the, of the Neufeld Memo is you're supposed to demonstrate that the H-1B petitioner is the, the employer, in fact, that they're directing the activities. And at the same time they're imposing these this they have this strange language about that seems to indicate the end client has somehow become the employer it's really it it's it's sort of internally contradictory they want they it have seems like a trap. It
0: too. it's almost like a trap and like they mm-hmm. want to so they 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 cash in all these checks pocket all the money mm-hmm. and give issue all these denials uh, which I, I i really i i don't know why we're not suing mm-hmm. in droves why h one consulting companies some cases are absolutely worthy of challenging. And I'll sort of get to it hopefully in a few minutes.
2: You know, but this circles back to something they said in their opening remarks in the memo. They refer to there being a vendor and an implementation vendor. Mm -hmm. And there's a distinct difference because I get the feeling that if you're getting letters from vendors and you're looking at end clients, they're looking for the specific job duties coming from the end client and they're characterizing the end client as the ultimate employer. They're trying to re-characterize what's going on. But I'm I'm just getting a sense from the tone of the memo that if you had multiple people placed at one client site, and one of those person one of those people was, for example, in a lead position where the person was actually dictating the job duties of the other people, and they were all together three people, five people, and this person is the lead software developer, or this person is the manager of the group or if you have autonomy of the pro- of the product where you have 10 or 15 people placed at a client site and they're saying this is the project we want you to complete and your job is to complete the project from beginning to end so your company is actually dictating who's doing what when, but perhaps it's at the client site, I get the feeling that there'd be a lot more room to be able to make arguments and to present documentation than on the limited basis where you're doing single individuals being placed at end-client sites. So this is a time where I agree with Sheila, it's it's just ridiculous, this memo, but at the same time, you have to start thinking a – And a a consultant is not just a consultant. An end client is not just an end client. A vendor is not just a vendor. You have to start taking the time to drill down to the exact relationship that you're dealing with to be able to decide how to present the case in the light most favorable for your employee to be able to get that approval, for you to be able to get that H-1 approval.
0: So should the employer, for example, try to challenge and fight back rather than saying ultimate employer slash end client where they actually say, um, the end client who is serving the needs based on other con- series of contracts to serve our company and other goals and other job duties. These are the job duties. And this is the location. We will plan to put him in location A for this time and, and, and that way focus on the fact that we are the decision makers as the direct H-1B employer slash consulting company employer as opposed to... F- you know, almost rolling over and acting like we're dead.
2: So I think a little bit of both. I think one thing is if I have five or six people that are placed at a client site, my question is, are they placed together? If they are, did you designate that as the location for ABC company to be able to work within your site? So I would say it's like a subgroup within this location. I would start there. Is one person designated as a manager? No, he's a lead person. Does he deal with the end client manager only and then trickle down the job duties and responsibilities? If yes, I think you have a bona fide argument. Um, I'd look at these types of things where uh, we're gonna get to this what the specific job duties are later on, but I'd look to trying to make the argument that the end client is merely the location where the work is being performed if you have control of a project at any given period of time. So what I would try to do in every way that I can, if I have multiple people at a single cl- at a single location, is to recharacterize the relationship as much as possible to say, this doesn't fit into what you guys are looking for.
0: Okay. And again, you know, to stress, the employment cannot be what the government, in the even the Newfound Memo and other places, they've used the term speculative, including in this memo. They say it cannot be speculative. And so a statement by you as the H-1B employer slash petitioner with no corroborating evidence will certainly not be sufficient to obtain that H-1B approval. You absolutely need to include... The contracts and work orders show that it's a specialty occupation. Uh, explain each of the relationships and how you're monitoring and doing the work. So, let me come back to both of you, Chris and Aaron. Mm-hmm. What can and should the H one B petitioning employer do, in addition to what that they've always been doing, based on this memo?
1: And I think it's it's interesting the the uh, the amount of attention that's paid to speculative employment here, Sheila. Um, the sort of the the USCS's favorite means of attack of, of petitions for the past for the pap, cap, past cap season has been specialty occupation. We've been buried with specialty occupation RFEs, as has everyone. Um, I think for this for this uh, upcoming cap season and for even for extensions going on, I think USCS's uh, main means of attack is going to be this speculative language. I think that's going to be one of their become one of their favorite means to attack H-1B petitions. No, they to have deny multiple H- angles. H- they have specialty they have and speculative. They can they can roll them both into one because it's all interrelated. Um, but what do you how do you prove something is not speculative? Um, some of the things that are specifically named are things like technical documents, um, project documents, milestone tables for a project, um, marketing analysis for a product. Um, these are things I tend, I would tend to associate more with in-house employment rather than an EVC model case. But maybe you're going to have them in some in some consulting type positions as well. Um, cost benefit analysis for a product, again, something I'd really associate more with in-house employment than with a with a an EVC type case. But maybe you'll have these in some types of, of uh, maybe situations. they would have to go to the end client. You might have to the, go to the end client to get there,
0: because the reason that they're deciding to work with uh, contractor employees. Who might be on H-1Bs because they feel that they have already done the cost-benefit analysis and determined mm-hmm. it is not worth hiring people in-house to right. do this, or, or really comes back to that there isn't aren't sufficient people available. Sure. All
1: right. They also mentioned brochures and uh, funding documents, uh, venture capital documentation, that type of thing. Again, more associated with in-house employment, but maybe you can get this type of thing from an end client. That might be a, I think that's an uphill battle, but potentially Maybe it's go to possible. their
0: website, print mm-hmm. it out from their website, right. whatever. Aaron?
2: Yeah, so I would just add a couple of things. One is this thing speculative, e- e- the concept, again, bothers me a little bit in a sense that if you're paying somebody between seventy-five thousand to a hundred and twenty-five thousand, you're not speculating on ten employees that are costing you a million and a million and a half dollars. That's in just a base
0: salary without benefits.
2: In the hopes that maybe we'll get something, so we'll, we'll. It just the logic behind that I would pay somebody so much money to speculate that maybe we'll hit a job just seems, and so many people just seems, you know, the standard of more likely than not. The standard would be that's unlikely. Uh, so I think that that sounds a bit ridiculous. Uh, some of the things they're asking for, to be honest, I, don't, I, I think that it's going to be a challenge to sort how you're going to do that. For example, where they're asking for contractual agreements between the petitioner and all parties involved in the employee placement, first of all, the petitioner may, it may be a chain. And it may not be a contract between all the parties, but a contract between the employer to a vendor, and then the vendor to a prime vendor or an implementation partner, and then to an end client. So you may have to get multiple contracts for this. Also, general contracts like MSAs, Master Services Agreements, they generally don't go into the specific nuances until you drill down into more of the SOWs and the specific timelines. So when they're talking about more detailed contractual agreements, they may not just exist, and you may have to deal with floating to the next level. The next level is statement of work or orders signed by an official of the end client. It should detail the specialized duties, the specific, uh, the qualifications, the duration of hours. One thing I can tell you is that if you have an, if you have a, a vendor to an end client and all the dollars and cents are listed all over the place, the vendor may not be excited to share with the end client. So you need to know for this particular requirement that it's okay. They even put it there, heavily redacted is okay with them. So if it means that you have to black out the amount of money or you have to black out a particular term or black out something that perhaps is proprietary in nature – Any of those things, as long as the general idea of what are the duties, where they're going to be performed, those types of things are being uh, the, the, the validity period of when they're going to be performed, as long as those are listed, the rest can be heavily redacted and perhaps is necessary even to get that vendor to share it with you because they probably have some information they don't want to see, like how much they're charging their actual client. And finally, a letter signed by the end client official which uh, with detailed job duties, qualifications, and gi- duration of the job that's, uh, that is that is being supervised. Uh, and this is something we've seen before. They've been asking for these types of end-client letters in the past.
0: This is ridiculous. Again, I know it sounds just beyond crazy to think this is going on. You know, they also talk about that the itinerary, and we touched upon this briefly, is required where services are performed in more than one location, that it's no longer optional, but that it's almost mandatory. And the itinerary must include the dates and the location, and that they actually point out to the fact that it is a regulatory requirement, and failure to submit the itinerary could result in the outright denial with no RFE or no NOID, so the question is, I guess the next question then is, which is associated with this is, now they've put all these roadblocks and multiple uh, excuses almost to take your money and not give you the uh, mm-hmm. an approval. What should the employer do? Should the employer request? Because the law allows the employer to request up to a three year H-1B validity timeframe. Mm-hmm. So isn't that now in a question and what should the employer do, Chris and Aaron?
1: That's absolutely true. I, Sheila, as you know, H-1Bs can be approved for up to three years. Um, But for a number of years, we've seen a decrease in the number of three-year approvals, particularly when you're talking about an IT consulting or a consulting position, an EVC model case. A lot of times you get a shortened approval. Uh, Might just be for the validity of a statement of work or validity of a contract. That's not uncommon. And this this memo restates that. it, this memo is essentially telling USCIS adjudicators, you should not approve these H-1Bs beyond the period of time that can be demonstrated. So contracts, statements of work, that's all you're going to get based on this memo. Um, I think there's still sort of a, because for a number of years, I think we we could rely on getting three-year years appro- three year approvals on our H-1Bs. It, it's just not the case anymore, and I think everyone really has to be absolutely clear on this. Do not expect a three-year approval on you anymore unless you can prove a three-year project. And it's rare that there's a project that you can prove will exist for three years. Um, Because most
0: master service agreements, most vendor-aligned, most of them tend to be year to year or two years renewable Mm -hmm. automatically, in fact, without any further documentation in many cases. And I think that if there's been a track record of prior approvals, again, you could make the argument, give it to me because here's the Mm -hmm. proof that it was renewed for the past so many years but again there's no guarantee it's going to work under this new memo and they
1: seem to be signaling to the uscs to the actual adjudicators that 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 that's not really going to be an option anymore that you you approve to the length of the the length of the contract here is what they what they appear to be saying
0: this is so crazy in fact just today i had a consultation with a client um where the gentleman had obtained was on his 15th year h1b continuing to get approvals and got a denial based on specialty occupation, based on title, based on programmer analyst. Person's not even doing mm. programming analysis, completely different field. Um, but again, it comes back to demanding answers, challenging because employers just say, oh, I don't have time, you know what, I'll just file a new case. I don't know if it's worth doing an MTR and appeal or going to federal district court to fight the case. But if you see from every case that from the initial executive orders trying to prevent people coming into the United States from certain countries, et cetera. All of those cases where Trump lost, mm-hmm. got a slap on the wrist time after time by different courts and different states and different jurisdictions, cities challenging the, the administration. And the administration pretty much has lost most of those cases badly. They're badly mm-hmm. bruised. They just hope and pray nobody will sue them. They're hoping for wimps uh, not to challenge the government. But if we don't challenge them, then we are letting craziness prevail. Mm -hmm. Anyway, so, Aaron, what about extensions?
2: So, you know, the extensions, it's interesting because the standard has always been you have to be in status. It's actually in a regulation. You have to be in status and maintaining status to extend status. What What they've been doing for extensions is they've been saying, provide me your pay stub provide me your I-94 card and that to us is prima facie. That's enough evidence to show us that you've been in status and maintaining status and will generally be okay to give you the extension of status now. Now what they're doing is they're keying in on even matter of simio solutions, the case that allowed that said, hey, if you're moving from one jurisdiction, if you're staying within the same jurisdiction, the same metropolitan statistical area, here you don't necessarily need to file an amendment for your H-1B. If you're moving from one end client to another end client, even those types of cases become a bigger question. And the reason why is now they're saying, prove to us not only with the wages, but prove to us that you continue to work in a specialty occupation and prove to us that the employer continued to have right to control, which essentially loops back to an end client letter. And if that loops back to your end client letter to prove right of control and to prove specialty occupation, if you have different or multiple end clients, even if it fits into the Simeo solution characteristic, it's going to raise the question of whether or not you've maintained your status and may create an issue. Uh, One thing I just wanted to point out between, Sheila, between validity periods and the extensions that they're putting out there right now, what it may mean is additional H-1B filings in order to maintain your status. And if you think the government is overloaded now, what happens when you have to double your filings or triple your filings just to be able to maintain these amendments and these extensions that they're asking? I think potentially this is something that's going to be harmful to them as well, because I don't know how they're going to be able to maintain the volume and do it at any particular uh, reasonable pace to be able to succeed. Well, but they're
0: squeezing money out a few hundreds of dollars for a petition that should take 10 minutes to hit three buttons to issue a 10-page or 20-page RFE. Mm-hmm. So it seems like everything is a money-making gimmick and a scam, in my opinion. Um, anyway, you can see I'm not very <laughs> trustful of the <laughs> government at this time. Aaron, you said you wanted to sort of give go over like a brief summary. It looks like you're ready, all excited, ready to talk about this a little bit.
2: Well, it's just that some things like end client letters, master services agreements, SOWs, those types of things, the government has already been looking for for a long time. The fact that this memo memorializes it or demands it in a more formal sense, it's not something that um, that I think that uh, that that consulting companies haven't seen before and aren't geared up to provide. Uh, but there are added things like these enhanced uh, itineraries uh, cor- corroborating documents for specialty occupation uh, strict enhance- ad- adherence to the to the specific validity periods, um, more documentation for extensions uh, These are things that have definitely changed, and these are things that consulting companies. Uh, are, you clearly show that consulting companies, I think, are carrying more of a target on their back and therefore have to either, as Sheila would say, fight back against the government or be very particular in the way that they dot their I's and cross their T's so that when an issue comes up, such as through the audits or such as through the FDNS site visits or such as through wage an hour, doing a uh, review of your, of your, of your um, LCAs and your wages, all of these things you have to be hyper hyper uh, aware of to make sure that you're doing it correctly, so that it doesn't become an issue later
1: down the line.
0: Okay, thank you, Aaron. Chris, did you want to add something?
1: I'd, I'd agree with what Aaron just said. Um, I just, in the IT consulting context, some of these things are going to be going to be problematic going forward. Um, particularly if you're talking about a, a chain of multiple vendors, um, getting contracts is going to be problematic. It always has been. That was the idea. That was why in-client letters and vendor letters have, have previously been acceptable as a substitute. Getting contracts is problematic, uh, particularly if you're talking about getting a contract from someone you don't have a direct relationship with. Although, also, the, although it talks about in-client letters here, these are, very, these are, I think, somewhat different in-client letters than, than people are used to providing. A lot of times, when we get an in-client letter, it just says, essentially, "This person is, is based here. this person is not our employee." End of story. The in-client letter, letters that this memo seems to uh, talk about, uh, talk about detailed job duties, requirements for the position, um, lots of things that are going to be very demanding from the in-clients.
0: And do you think it's a catch-22 when they ask for the details and the job duties and the requirements, then they say, got you, you're the real H1 employer Absolutely. and the other one isn't, so we're going to deny it because of lack of employer-employee relationship Absolutely. now.
1: I can see you submitting this in-client letter th- as, as discussed in this memo, with detailed job descriptions, uh, job requirements, and having them turn around and say, no, no employer-employer relationship, case denied.
2: Chris, I'm just curious, with all these details, specificity, all the different software, technology, everything that's out there, do you think that the officers are
1: qualified to know the difference? In general, no. I mean, we will, it's very common to submit an H-1B petition with very, very detailed job descriptions, um, but with lots of technical language, and they get back in our request for evidence saying the job description is too vague. No, it's not too vague. The adjudicator just didn't understand it. So do you think that it helps when you're
2: preparing these job descriptions to put context behind what the guy's doing and where it fits
1: into the big picture? I think it's helpful. Uh, you have to remember the people who are reading these petitions at USCS, they're, they're normally not, not IT people you use a lot of, of uh, technical language they're not going to understand what you're t- you're talking about their eyes are going to glaze over then they they they're not going to approve the case if they don't understand what the person is doing you have to for lack of a better word dumb this down and really act like you're you're teaching you're teaching the USCIS officer what is going on in this position you really have to work at that and that's that's a challenge that's a challenge for for the companies and for the for the H1B employees this is not something they're used to doing I mean, they're technical people. They deal with other technical people. Having to to teach someone who's a layman what their job is, it's not something they're used to doing.
2: Right. So it becomes almost counterintuitive where you think they want to show it's a specialty occupation. So you're going to add all this hyper, super technical language, mm-hmm. which they're going to look at as generic gibbley you know, generic gibberish, unless you can put it in some type of contextual form to be able to go forward. It might even be that to make it not generic, you have to dummy it down to a 10th grade or 11th grade level of understanding. Uh, 10th to grade to is being minding. very
0: kind. I would do it to the 5th grade or the 8th grade <laughs> level, middle school level as opposed to high school level. You can see
2: Sheila feels very strongly <laughs> about this memo, that's for well, sure. Well,
0: you know, when we started uh, the, actually uh, the, the coming up to do this teleconference for you all, this uh, to, to, uh, to right now today, we actually thought it would be done in 10 minutes. But you can see all of us are just talking from knowledge and information and background. Sure, we've looked at the memo, sure, we've dissected it, we've analyzed it, but we have some serious, serious concerns. And, you know, for those of us who, many of you I know on the call, conference call, have actually done a bunch of H-1B petitions last year in October, for October 1st, 20, called the 2018 fiscal year, which was October 1st, 2017, through September 30th of 2018, uh, and you thought you had a pretty rough time when your candidate or your employees were thought they were lucky enough to be, to have been selected in the lottery slash won the lottery by getting selected for their h one b being picked but then this we saw a lot of the consulting companies have this huge increase in the denials of the h one b cap subject cases based on lack of specialty occupation the whole level one wage a whole bunch of new the the sneaky um, uh, tricksters who, who released the memo dated March 31st of 2017 when they knew everybody was ready to file uh, already on that day by the time they released that memo. This year, I guess, maybe because they got some pushback or people thought they were sneaky, they actually had the decency, I guess, if you want to call that, call it that memo dated February 22nd, though they couldn't even put a name of Mm -hmm. who the heck was issuing it from which service center and who was authorized to do this. But it's dated February 22nd. So you have time enough to wonder whether we should even waste money filing cases with these additional hurdles that are going to be placed on you as H-1B employers, particularly for consulting companies or companies that are acting in this capacity.
2: No, I absolutely um, echo the words that she was saying in terms of fighting for justice. I also empathize with the employers uh, who are trying to make a buck, just trying to get their businesses going, and with the employees that are trying to have families and pursue the American dream. Um, There are ways that you can look at it, especially if you have multiple employees at one location, especially if you have long-standing relationships with your mid-vendors and your end clients. Um, It is a time to stand up and to fight. It's also a time to think about what you're filing. The days of putting together a file and throwing it in there and it just gets approved, that's not these days, but it doesn't mean it's an impossible hurdle to overcome. It just means you've got to be more aggressive, you've got to be a little bit smarter, and you've got to go, you know, toe the line a little bit more to get to that place. And I don't see anything wrong with taking a two-tiered approach fight the good fight, go to federal government, contribute to what you need to contribute, step up to be a plaintiff when you need to, but at the same time, be smart about how you're preparing and what you're doing so that you can continue to have success in your businesses while you're getting all of this to a better place.
0: Absolutely, if the employer is able to provide all of this documentation and able to dot the I's, cross the T's, and get the support from the end client willing to give them this information, the case is approvable. is potentially approvable, even according to them. Chris, you're trying to say something?
1: Yeah, it just I, I, and I just to, to sort of go on with what Aaron was saying, um, we've talked a lot about compliance in the past year or so. We've seen lots more investigations, lots more uh, document fraud investigations. Clearly, the U.S. government, the Department of Homeland Security, ICE, um, Department of Labor, they're looking at, at H-1Bs, and they're looking at H-1B employers a lot more closely. Um, and and some of this all comes from a perception that there's there's been abuse, there's, 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 the been abuse. System, there's benching, there's wage violations. Mm. And and truthfully there has been some of that. So this is this does not this is not coming in a vacuum. There have been things that have led to this to this this type of memorandum from the U.S. government. And employers, if they cut corners, if they if they play fast and loose with the regulations, they're hurting themselves, they're hurting the whole system. Um so please, absolutely, ev- everyone needs to be really toe the line, really be very careful what they're doing on their H-1Bs because it will come back to bite you and it comes back, it it harms everyone who's filing H-1Bs, frankly.
0: Absolutely, and Chris, I couldn't agree with you more. In fact, in a lot of the seminars and talks that I give around the country, I always say, you know what, it is a nation of laws, it is a nation of rules, we all need to play by the rules Don't commit fraud or misrepresentation. Don't get tempted to take the shortcuts. And all of that goes without saying, and there is a concern from all of this that they feel a lot of consulting companies have a higher level of wage violations, benching, fraud, you know, improper work locations with the matter of similar solutions mm-hmm. case, et cetera. Just because of the tight timing of this memo that just came out, that recently came out, what we might do at the Murti law firm is probably played or replayed a couple different times for our first, our existing Murti law firm clients, and then possibly for um, others out in the industry and other organizations that uh, I choose to serve on as a legal advisor to help them. So, Hopefully, all of the organizations can benefit from the analysis and the discussion of this memo to try and increase your chances of getting the H-1B approval in this really bizarre political climate. As always, on behalf of myself, Sheila Murthy, Aaron Finkelstein, our managing attorney, and Chris Trinen, and all of us at the Murthy Law Firm, We thank you for joining us for today's teleconference. We hope we can help you with your H-1B processing and we look forward to continuing to take good care of you. Have a great day.
1: This is a free service.
0: The content is the protected copyrighted property of the Murthy Law Firm. Unauthorized recording or dissemination of these materials without prior permission is prohibited by law. Learn about our firm. How to engage our services and more at www.murthy.com.